Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the London School of Economics um, for tonight's uh, TV on trial event. Um, but a slightly different arrangement tonight in that, um, well, short of uh, judicial punishment, we are running through a judicial process, uh, so it's going to be a slightly different format. Um, in a minute, I'm going to attempt to play you a little film which uh, runs through some of the issues uh, that we'll be dealing with tonight and then I'll be handing over to Roger Bolton who's going to be chairing tonight's event along with Mark Stevens who's going to be conducting the uh, interrogation. Um, my name's Charlie Beckett. I'm the director of POLIS which is the new journalism and society think tank here at the London School of Economics. It's a partnership with the London College of uh, Communication. Um, before that I worked at uh, BBC News and Current Affairs and latterly at uh, Channel 4 News as a programme editor so um, in a sense I suppose I stand accused as well. Um, we're delighted to host this uh, the event tonight with uh, the Media Society, with the support of Broadcast and the LSE Media Group. Um, over the last year that POLIS has been going we've been talking a lot about the sustainability of journalism and uh, the news media uh, generally, and one of the issues, one of the words that keeps cropping up again and again and again is trust. Uh, trust editorially, trust uh, uh, in terms of economics, how do you keep people's uh, faith uh, and uh, their commitment to the kind of media that we produce. Um, journalism, TV is on trial. Uh, the audience isn't happy. In a sense, I kind of half expected a number of you to turn up tonight with brandishing torches and pitchforks and nooses. Um, there is something of a mood out there of distrust. And this isn't just about the editing of a documentary promo. It's not just about uh, giving the wrong name to a cat in a children's TV program. Um, it's not even just about uh, deliberately misleading people over uh, TV phone-ins there's something more basic going on. I think people are turning away from conventional TV, conventional media, um, for a variety of reasons. Partly they can do it themselves, but also I think there is a sense that people want a more transparent, more honest and more relevant form of media and news media in particular. Um, Polis is here because we think it's time to defend the best of journalism, the best of television, but it's also, I think, the moment when uh, journalists and people in the wider uh, media have to wake up and realise that, in a sense, the priesthood has been defrocked, the cosy party is over, and the arrogance and occasional mendacity that has characterised some of our work is no longer tolerable. New media technologies and the emerging uh, markets and uh, ways of making uh, our media mean that there's a fantastic opportunity to sustain the best of the journalism and media that we produce. But what we produce and the way we do it will never be the same again. Polis is all about that big picture and I hope that as tonight that we debate and interrogate the craft and the detail we remember that there are I think, anyway, much deeper issues at stake. Um, but first, let's have a look at the charge sheet, as it were. Um, and I'm going to play a piece. 
Let's go down. Do you want to take it? Okay, let's assume, though, I think we'd better assume that you, well, and they were fair with the things that uh, right the end have gone wrong. And on the assumption we have assembled an absolutely no cost tonight, uh, an all white, all male, all middle aged panel <laughs> of people with glorious futures behind them. Or <laughs> <laughs> in the case of David Elstein, of course, in front of him. Can I explain the running order of what we're about? If you do it in the next couple of minutes, get that, that you tell me. What we're going to do is we've got a selection of witnesses here who've got a lot of experience, uh, I don't say of cheating or thinking or whatever, at least discovering that they've taken place. He would be controlled by a policy and have to deal with these issues in the broadcast. But nobody who is representing a vested interest, except perhaps the vested interest of journalists. Uh, we've got uh, a number of witnesses. They're going to come up one by one when I call. I'll introduce them. Uh, then Mark Stevens, who's going to join me on the platform now, part of the final Stephen Innocent, uh, is going to examine them after initial statement. I'll ask a couple of questions probably as well. And then we want to give you the opportunity of uh, asking not many questions, because we've got a lot of witnesses, but some questions. At the end, when we're through, we're going to have a vote on the very general, we acknowledge, extremely general question, which is can we trust TV after all of the things you've uh, heard about. Let me, let's get straight on then. Let's get our first witness. Our first witness is Laurie Flynn. Laurie revealed the 1996 Carlton drug trafficking documentary, The Connection, to be significantly fabricated, just in case you thought the problems only belonged to 1997. They seem pretty big in 19... 2007. They seemed pretty big in 1996. Uh, the expose resulted in Carlton being fined a record £2 million. I don't think Laurie has worked for Carlton subsequently. Laurie. Good evening. Would you like to stand behind this? Oh, sure. yeah. I just took a call before uh, coming in here from a very remarkable man with remarkable te uh, technology. Uh, his name's Mark Twain, and he gave me an exclusive interview, which uh, I'm about to report to you. And I do hope you'll trust me. I think you should trust anyone who uses the phrase, trust me. Uh, Mark Twain wrote that there are 869 different forms of lying, but only one was expressly forbidden by the Bible. And that was long before the explosion of modern journalism. He also said he thought it was a much better idea to teach ethics than practice them. His motto was to give them to other people. Well, in a funny sermonizing way, that's what we tried to do at The Guardian. And eventually, uh, when we started looking at uh, the nature of police corruption, we found that uh, The Guardian no longer looked so benevolently on us, but... Hey, that's tough. That's the price you pay for poking your big nose into places you shouldn't put them and for trying to understand the uh, causes of things. What would Mark Twain have made of the recent uh, explosion of problems? What fun he'd have had with the, with the CAT scan? What fun he'd have had with the Shell oil reserve scandal or BP's 
guru, Lord Brown, lying in court. That's a pretty mean achievement. What would he have made of Northern Rock? What would he have made of Guns on the Street, the famous ITV or Channel 4 documentary where neither of the reporters came from the hometown they claimed to be protecting? And one of them even had a conviction re-established for armed robbery. In other words, he broke into houses before he broke into television. Uh, this did not make us popular exposing this. Uh, but we didn't set out to be popular. We didn't set out to be nasty. But we set out to try and explore some of the rarer practices on the edges of television, which, if they're not rooted out, will soon spread much closer to the heart of television. And it's not only in television and business. We see it in what uh, one prominent writer has called the axis of deceit in government around the, uh, the recent problems in the war in the Middle East. And it's quite interesting. Some of the academic research shows that uh, in America, a third of people still believe that weapons of mass destruction were discovered in Iraq. And indeed, they probably believe this because George Bush has stated on television that they were discovered and his ally, uh, Mr. Blair, said he felt sure they would be discovered. Well, we haven't heard too much more of that. I, I think there is a crisis of trust in society, and I think it's quite a positive thing in some ways. People are much more skeptical and much more inquiring. They're much less likely to engage in blind faith, and this is not a bad thing. I was very heartened by uh, reading the text of, uh, of Michael Grade's speech at the Royal Television Society last week where he attacks moral relativism and all the tricksy fiddling and cheating that's been going on. And I think with Grade we have at last someone at the, the helm of, of ITV who, who is, can be taken seriously, who can perhaps match up to people like Jeremy Isaacs and uh, David Plowright and Dennis Foreman and the other people who, who stood for something and who had civic purpose and didn't mind a fight if it was, uh, if it was uh, a truthful and honest one. So I don't, I don't think that uh, the crisis of trust is ever going to go away in educated democratic societies. People want to check up on you. So, so Laurie, sorry to, because yeah, we have to take about enough. two to three minutes. Is it your case then that we should not trust TV just as we should not trust almost any aspect of society and that you welcome perhaps people having a harsher view of television, that it's the scales fall, falling from our eyes as opposed to the, a fresh, as it were, corruption developing in broadcasting and television. I think you should trust your own intellect, trust your own reading of television. I think people need to become more media literate and they need to know more about the tricks, and I think that's happening. And God knows when the digital platforms come in, you're going to need that more than ever. So your argument is don't trust TV. Uh, trust and distrust. I mean, well, yes, make, your mind, make your mind up, Larry. Uh, well, I, 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 mean, I don't trust every book in a library. You know, I don't... I don't uh, but, I mean, could we ever trust television? I mean, are you saying that things have changed, or are you saying that society has changed? I think, I think there's a bit of both. And, uh, Are you just saying that society's wised up to the conjuring tricks? That you can hold contradictory ideas in your mind and examine your own ideas. But why, 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 should we tr why shouldn't we trust the, te the television? Isn't, isn't, uh, aren't we reposing trust with our license fee? I think it's very important to exercise your own literacy. 
and for every television viewer to do that, particularly in the light of the events that have taken place in television. I don't think they're wholly new. Uh, in his speech, Mr. Gray re refers to someone who used to send back instructions that his report should be edited to gunshot uh, sounds. He doesn't name that person, but I think uh, taking a shrewd guess, his first name probably rhymes with Andy, and as Bob Dylan says, he sure had a lot of gall. Uh, so I'll <laughs> leave it to you to guess who that might be. But let's just look at, look at uh, your own practical experience. You were a journalist on This Week for years and years. Um, when you had a really bad guy, perhaps uh, a confidential source had given you all the information, wouldn't you just fiddle it a bit, just to show, make it clear to the public, to tell the truth that you knew? A confidential source can never give you all the information. A confidential well, source is have someone who can give you, you information. That have you, you ever gingered it up you just to make sure? Of them. Have you ever gingered it up just to make uh, uh, well, a point? Well, the things I write about and make TV programs about are so appalling that I usually ginger them down and calm them down. You know, if you're describing what happened in Bhopal or in the asbestos mines in South Africa or the gold mines. Well, let's take Bhopal or the gold mines, for example. Um, had you ever wanted to have someone die on television because of the commercial pressures of ratings. Well, I thought I would maybe do that myself, but uh, <laughs> I see Paul Watson tends to beat me to it. So. Your witness. Right. Now, was anybody like in the audience, anybody like to put a question um, to Laurie? Anybody raise? Put your hand up if you do. Would you like to put a question to? Right. Later there. Yeah. If you just take the mic, we've got Ruby mic around. It's a slightly simplistic question, really, but what do we do about people who don't exercise discernment? I guess that's what this debate is about, really. You know, not everyone is exercising the literacy that you're talking about. Should it be taught in schools, perhaps? I don't know. Well, I think my own experience is that British television, on hugely on balance, has led to a much more knowledgeable and literate society, although there's another medium called education, which is uh, even more significant than television or radio because in the end they're just lights in a box depending on what you use them for. What do we do about these people? We be open and honest about what goes on that's bad in our own professions. That's one of the first things we can do. And we can actually insist that people who lie and cheat the way the uh, producers of uh, the Carlton documentary, The Connection, pay a price for it. I think a good dose of community service down some sewer would be, you know, give, give the sewage workers a day off would be a suitable punishment. Okay. Anybody else uh, want to raise a question? Okay, Laurie, last question for me. Do you think that the situation is worse now than it was ten years ago almost when you did the Carlton Connection? Do you think there's been a slip in standards, that we are less trustworthy now than we were? I think there's definitely a huge slippage in terms of which awkward, difficult stories broadcasters will tackle. And I think there's a problem in the fact that there's no longer the, the, the big teams, well-funded teams like the one you ran uh, this week, which can spend months looking into something. And there's a crisis in training. Uh, and there are a lot of young people, very decent, well-educated, idealistic, and uh, ambitious young people who want to do important things. 
But is there a moral, what I'm trying to get at, is there now a greater moral crisis? I think there probably is, yeah, because I think uh, facts have become unfashionable and truth has become unhip. Uh, I don't care whether it's hip or unhip. It matters to me. It's part of the most important part of our humanity to try to discover the truth. Is it about hip or is it about commerce? Well, I think it's it's about commerce. The uh, sacking of journalists is never a good thing. The lack of training of journalists and filmmakers is never a good thing, and that's all to do with driven by the bottom line. You know, we've learned from past financial crisis that the big profits of today are usually stolen from the future or found from some absurd cut that is made in, uh, in staffing levels, whether it be in a hospital or a newspaper. This is very bad, and I think it's tragic that ITV is about to dismantle its regional television operations. I think it's very sad. Laurie Flynn, thanks very much. Thank you. I now um, ask uh, Roger Grafe to stand up and come to the platform. Roger, as you will know, writer, filmmaker, broadcaster, criminologist and a founding board member of Channel 4 and was awarded the BAFTA Fellowship in 2004. So a degree of perspective, Roger. Well, I'm rather foolishly probably cast myself as ethics man uh, when this debate started quite a long time ago uh, by publishing and discussing the rules of filming and saying to the people we wanted to film that uh, this is what I would want if I... Uh, if I asked for access, or somebody asked to ask for access to me. And so we have very clear guidelines, which we then show the finished work to the people that, uh, that have been uh, in, in the films, so that we make sure that they're factually correct according to those people. But there's t- as we've moved on into other kinds of journalism and, and uh, television, and with deadlines uh, imposed on us, and with more and more people who didn't kind of grow up in the same environment as I did uh, working with me, I can see a number of different kinds of uh, ethical problems. And uh, the, the, the being economical with the truth, of course, is something that you have to do when you've only got a thousand words, or 200 words, or a uh, 15-minute report out of many hours, or even indeed one hour out of 45 hours. 60 or 100 hours of shooting. And with video technology, people do a great deal more spraying and hoping than actually considering what they wanted to do in in advance and really knowing what they're going after and then testing it. And in a way, what that has then produced are are what I really would call four typologies, if you like, of error and and mistrust, if you like, grounds for mistrust. The first is simply inexperience people who don't have any sense of what fact-checking is really about, uh, who will go to Wikipedia as a source without uh, realizing that it's actually composed of people who just put in whatever they want it to be. And they don't, in a sense, know what two, three sources or primary sources really are. And that's not obviously something uh, that we can do very much about except through training and support and supervision. Then you have ignorance as in, again, not knowing what a primary source is about, but real ignorance of, in a sense, what the truth could be, uh, because in a way what they really are looking for is a story. And there's a wonderful phrase which has been going, you know, as long as I'm sure as journalism existed, which is don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. And that's always said rather jokingly in the edit room when you come up with something that doesn't quite fit what you're, you think you've got. But it is a moral predicament for everybody who's ever had that experience of finding that what you thought was there just wasn't, or sometimes, in our experience at least, um, it's even better than you thought, but it's more complicated. So you then have to be economical with it, so you chop off the edges because you've got to simplify. And in so doing, you are definitely falsifying 
certainly by losing nuance, and you could even change the emphasis, which is why we find it helpful to, um, uh, to show the films. But you know, the combination of inexperience and then ignorance is the second one. The third, of course, is venal, where somebody really knows something hasn't happened or has purposely not bothered to find out. Uh, they've actually seriously distorted um, what's gone on simply to sell the story. And you know, time and again, more in tabloid than in, in television, uh, they've been asked to do this. Uh, the the Mad Madeleine case in Portugal is a very clear example where the Portuguese media have been fed specific stories by the police that, uh, the, that the chief uh, investigator of that case knew to be wrong and then was told by his superiors to defend, and so he resigned. He just wasn't going to do it. But you could see the process, and it's picked up very quickly by the media here because they couldn't and didn't bother checking primary sources to, to, uh, to combat it. Uh, the fourth, however, is really interesting, and I was going to, I'm going to confess something which uh, I, people in this room will not have known, except with the possible exception of Stephen Whittle, who worked at the BBC when we did, uh, and that is that they were unwitting uh, failure uh, to tell the truth, as it were, because technologically, either the camera switched off at a certain moment or you were blocked from the action or some way or another you think you've got the, the whole story and actually you don't because you, either you weren't there or you just missed it. And that's, a, that's even more complicated, if you like, because when you're in that situation, and I, in the situation that I, I'm going to quote to you, the footage we showed in one of our episodes of a police series showed a, a, a police officer stopping a fight by grabbing a girl who was trying to get away from the fight, and apparently uh, just she looked like she was wrestling and resisting and kind of being very aggressive to him. But, uh, and that's all the footage we had and put it in the film, and then she afterwards complained against the police officer saying that he'd started it. And in, the, in our footage, he simply hadn't. And I defended him to the family, and I really didn't, you know, looking at the rushes, I wasn't there. And then it was only when we, the, the, the complaint was being investigated properly, uh, seriously, by, by an officer in the force, that we then rewound all the rushes, looked very closely, realized that the key moment which would uh, vindicate either him or her was simply blocked. There was a big person right in front, both of the CCTV cameras and in front of us. There were just too many people around, and we, nobody really knew. But the chances were, from a the fragment of an elbow that was raised, that you could just see beyond one of the person that she was right. And that, I mean, after weeks of looking at this and really you know, soul-searching, it wasn't casual, we decided that we got it wrong. So those are the four types that I think we have to deal with. The fourth just makes you humble so that you never can think that you've really got the answer the whole time. The first needs training, supervision, and the kind of uh, experienced editors, series editors, and executive producers that are in shorter and shorter supply and that are not just going to say, this is a great story, don't you know, file now, deliver now, and with the new technology, I think the problem is even worse because with user-generated content, you can have people turning in their own video stuff, filing it, posting it online, and so on. And you can never tell whether they just did it in their backyard. Uh, lastly, and I just you might find this interesting, I was making a film for the BBC about uh, the Koran, uh, about the Islam, the first one. And I was in Fez uh, at a, at a, on the terrace of a, of a hotel when... Um, the, the first moon, the pictures of the earth from the moon were taken. And uh, I, it was on the back page of the Times, and it was an absolutely wonderful photograph. And the uh, waiter came up to me and said, of course, that was shot in a Hollywood studio. And I said, no, 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 it couldn't possibly, you know, we don't do things like that. And he said, don't be ridiculous, how do you know? 
Um, because it turned out, I discovered later, that the Moroccans believed that Islam would come to an end when man landed on the moon, and he was certainly not having it. But as I found myself trying to say to him, the Times wouldn't do such a thing, I felt the weakness of that argument becoming more and more evident to me. And so I think those of us who do claim to be committed to the ethical journey uh, have to remain modest because we may find ourselves trapped by any one of those four uh, types of uh, uh, mistakes uh, or chosen or purposeful mistakes and there's far too much of it, there probably always has been and the lack of trained supervision I think is a crucial weakness in today's management of news and factual television. Roger, can I ask you how seriously we should take some things? Because there seems to be a mismatch between what people within certain parts of television centre, shall we say, and the outside world regard as serious. Let's take the Alan Yentob noddy. Conveyed to the audience watching the programme that Alan Yentob was interviewing a man or a woman, and he wasn't, because he wasn't there. Subsequent to the interview being conducted by a member of the production team, Alan Yentob sat in a room with nobody with him other than the cameraman, recorded questions he hadn't asked. Does that matter? Well, it's interesting because everyone in the room, I imagine, knows what a noddy is, and those are, or a re-ask, as it was called in America, where, you know, after the interview, the, inter the, the person who did do the interview sits in the chair, and if you can persuade the interviewee to sit there too, which I've watched cameramen bully prime ministers to say, you can't go now, just a minute, we've got to do the re-ask, and they sit there. I mean, that's already, you know, a, a kind, if you like, cheating. But I don't think that matters. I, personally, I actually don't like it at all. That it's not a question of don't lie. No, no, no. Do I think think it it, is it a form of deceit? Yes, in that it, the yes it, is. It, it is a form of deceit. And frankly, if it had been me, I would have not done that. I would have just cut the, the question, the answers together. And if it is a form of deceit, and it's committed by a senior member of the BBC management, is it possible for the BBC to move forward with him remaining as a senior member of the board of management with simply the very slightest of slaps on the wrist. I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, you but can. Actually, no now, one is stopping you. No, no. I think uh, um, Alan should be uh, much more uh, repentant than he has been. Uh, being a person who believes in and teaches in this hallowed institution sometimes about restorative justice, I would not, I don't, I'm not so keen on punishment, but I am keen on re repentance and apologies, and I don't think any, either any of them should be uh, have been as, as sanguine and offhand about it. It is different, and we need to keep a sense of perspective uh, from fraud. The telephone, the pay phones, was straight fraud. That's a criminal offence, no question about it. But this, this was is deceit. Not a criminal this offense. was no, deceit. This was deceit, but actually so was Grierson shooting uh, on the hull docks instead of on a trawler uh, to show, uh, you know, fish that weren't the fish that he pretended to be. The, the whole documentary tradition is based on some kind of deceit, if you like. So in the order of things, I don't think it's anything as perhaps serious the more as important, Perhaps the more important point, Mr. Grape, is actually differential treatment. Um, because it seems to me that uh, Noddygate, um, you know, it doesn't seem to me to take it very much further. What actually is the problem with, with, with it is that what you have is a senior member of the BBC who is being treated in a more favourable manner than people lower down the scale. Would you agree with that? Well, that it certainly appears to be the case, but it isn't just that, because we're talking about different kinds of offences. And what I'm suggesting to you, Mark, is that, the, that cheating of the kind of inserting a, a cutaway or whatever has been done in cutting rooms for yonks. And, uh, but does that make it okay? Um, well, it, it makes it, if you like, acceptable practice. And this is important. This. But Roger, I've no, never, no, ever, Roger, I've never, ever heard of a case where 
a cutaway question to done by someone who was not present at the interview. Which is why I think it's serious. I'm no, not saying it isn't serious. No, you just said it's always that that's never been done to my knowledge. No. Do you know? Before? No, I've never seen that either. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised if Tim Hewitt did, for example, on World in Action. I mean, Willori was on World in Action in the, the tradition of shooting in Golden Square. John Morgan standing with a hat on when it was snowing, pretending to be in Moscow, is a sort of famous uh, example of that. that. All I'm saying is that, you know, I don't think it's right. I would never do it. But I think as compared to making up uh, the outcome of a, of, a, of a competition or we're still committing criminal fraud, you know, it's a different order of things. I, I was interested in your identification of the symptoms it's almost like going to doctor and saying, I've got ignorance, inexperience, venality, uh, and un unwilling, uh, unwitting falsehood, doctor. Um, uh, the, the, the thing that uh, I'm interested in is what causes those symptoms? What is it? What is the infection that you have? Is it commercial pressure? Yeah. Is it the sort of competition that you have within the independent sector, the long working hours, the budget constraints, yes. uh, the need for an audience, the need for advertisers. Yes. Has, has, is it those things that has caused the, caused the symptoms that you identify? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, the difference can be compared to the time when I was lucky enough to be at the at, the, at uh, uh, Golden Square in, in Granada at a time when Granada was printing money. And therefore, people like Brian Laffing and myself and others were allowed to make two years to research a project, to put a 90-minute, 93-minute film on ITV uh, and have the network say, oh, fine, it's 93 minutes, don't worry, we'll move it, you know, as long as it goes out after 10.30. I mean, the kind of flexibility and respect for getting things right was definitely reflected in the budget and the amount of time we had. And Norma Percy, whom everybody will know, was the, you know, as dogged a person getting facts right as you'll ever know in your life. That sort of project is rarer and rarer. It is a matter of budget. It's a matter of ratings. And it's a matter of wanting to make sure that the story so, so the sort punches of through. We're, we're all clear that the sort of programs that you make and also that Laurie makes are, are, are disappearing from our schedules and, and perhaps why. But is this because that there's a sort of culture of cynicism amongst program makers or perhaps more amongst commissioning editors and, uh, and broadcasters? Well, I think actually to the commissioning editors I know and all the channels are, as it were, honor are lovely people. Yes, uh, we understand I was going that. to say honorable men and women. No, no, I mean, I, I have never been asked myself to change the ending or whatever. On the other hand, in some of the reality programs, and I had producers come to me and say, I can't do this anymore, they were told to change the endings to, so that it conformed to the script. They were told to force children to cry in Super Nanny. They were told to force, uh, you know, dissent in, in uh, Wipe Swap and so on. I mean, those were kind of, quote, reality shows. Is that true? It isn't true. I don't think it's a, it, I think it's a deeply improper thing to do, but it's something they were getting results because the, the, the outcome is different. And Mark, this is the crucial point. And there has to be some judgment about this. If what you're producing is evidence, you, don't, you mess with that at your absolute peril. But if what you're producing is entertainment and you're using as real people to do it, then the truth is there's a long tradition, rather like magic tricks and other kinds of illusions, that are, that, that's just the reality of it, and uh, we are not living in a perfect world. I think we can all agree that there's an element of artifice to, to all of this, but let's just test what you had to say there. Um, I mean, do you believe, for example, that TV bosses were as ignorant as they all profess of premium rate gate? I simply don't know. Not my territory. Sorry, I really don't know. I have no idea at all. And it seems I, improbable, doesn't well, it? Well, it does. Actually, given that they make so much money from it, I think they are probably hoping 
that it was, it was paka and that, or if it was, that they wouldn't get caught. I mean, speaking as a criminologist, I can tell you that the vast majority of people break the law in some form or other most of the time and they hope they won't get caught. But they give themselves permission because they say they're law-abiding people, right? So they will say paying black uh, money to my cleaning lady is not the same thing as robbing someone on the street. And they're right. So there's a kind of tolerance, if you like. But you're saying the cost of asking the question is too high. Well, sometimes it is. Because it is, it's implying a kind of perfect will. It's sort of, you know... Um, no, what I'm trying to get at is, if you bothered to ask the question about the quizzes and so on, you'd find an answer which would be fatal to your profits. As so you don't ask absolutely the question. Absolutely right. Sin of omission, yes. not of commission. Quite right. But actually, it is cynical, and there's no doubt about it, it's cynical. And if you were saying, uh, Mark, that this is being driven by budgets, competition, and a demand for ratings, I will agree with you 100%. Now, we've identified the illness, the symptoms... What's the cure? Well, I was saying, I think it's valuing... I mean, is it at the top? Well, it's in the middle. It's more and more senior executives of the kind that, like Rogers, Steve Hewlett in the audience and so on, who actually know what questions to ask. Because journalists with a lot of enthusiasm and who are in love with their story don't want, you know, to look too hard in case it turns out not to be true. And we're doing one literally right now for Panorama, which just, you know, is on the edge of something we can prove. We've had lots of anecdotal evidence, but we can't prove it. And until we can prove it, we're not going to go ahead. But it's very difficult because the money would be great. It's an hour-long special, blah, blah, blah. But we are used to that, and we do not want to get into the territory of suddenly having somebody say, where's the, where, you know, where's the beef? But that's not something that younger, hungrier, you know, sort of thrusting types may necessarily want to hear. Your I'm witness. Sorry, I'm sorry to have to push you along, Rod. Just hold for a minute. Anybody like to ask a question Roger Gave? Lady, right at the back, who I... Perhaps you could say who you are just to let people know. As an almost bankrupt independent, I'd like to challenge a couple of things Roger says. I don't think this is a question of money at all. And in a couple of the cases that we've all been titillated by recently, we have not been dealing with untrained people pushed to deadlines. We've been dealing with fairly senior and people up until recently who had very serious, good reputations. What we're talking about is editing, and editing is a subtle and difficult business, and it's not a question of money. Of course you can spend years editing and improve your product and improve your program, but we're really talking about judgment and about people who, for some reason or other, made the wrong judgments. And I doubt if any in the most flagrant cases we've been hearing about recently, should it turn out that it's been their fault, it has not been a question of money, and it has not been a question of lack of training. Are you saying, Anne, Zan Lapping, there, that it's, it's hyping, that what is going on is a, is a hyping of material above and beyond what yeah. used to be the case? and the truth is that all editing is a matter of judgment and to some extent a matter of either hyping or honing a story. And getting it wrong is a bad judgment call. And that's what we're talking about. And is, you your case, is it your case there are more bad judgment calls being made? In so far as they're being exposed, the other people, earlier generations, may have been luckier. But I don't think you can blame rate the ratings war, and I don't think you can blame reduced budgets. Much as we hate both those things. Actually, if I may pick up on this, I, I wasn't saying that reduced budgets and money were the only cause. I was saying there are four different types, 
and that, that, that if you look at the culture of ratings war, if we can talk about Queengate, which is the obvious one, uh, there's where Stephen is a very experienced man, seems to have been involved in that. Yes, but that he was doing that to sell the program abroad. He said so. He said, look, you know, it didn't matter because the only people who would see it were either TV critics and Sorry, foreign, did, did foreign you get, sales. Just stop just from, do you understand what Queengate is? It's that trailer that was shown to the press which showed the Queen walking out, but she hadn't walked out. And the sad thing was actually looking at it online, the, the, that was a terrific uh, piece of tra trail. If she'd been walking in, they didn't need to do it. It was just hyping. But that was to sell it and, you know, to maximize RDF's profits, clearly. Okay, I'm afraid we're going to have to move on. Roger Grafe, thank you very much indeed. Our next witness. <laughs> Our next witness is Phil Harding, who used to work on Panorama, then was editor of the Radio Force Today program between 87 and 93, is a former controller of editorial policy at the BBC and until yesterday or the day before, was director of the BBC World Service English Networks and News. His BBC pension is not affected by anything he says. <laughs> and I'm out. Um, can we still trust television? The short answer to that is yes, but only up to a point. And it should be only up to a point. Because in a healthy and informed democracy... Audiences should be sceptical of what they're being shown and should be sceptical of what they're being told. I think this is an issue that needs a lot of proportion and a lot of perspective, and both those things I don't think it's received enough of in recent weeks. Too many things, ranging from fraud to gross idiocy, have been rolled under facile newspaper headlines of TV fakery. And I don't think broadcasters need any lessons from some in the press of how to get stories wrong and how to get stories right. And I've been surprised at some of those who thought fit to write about this. By the way, I think the debate that Channel 5 started about noddies and walking shots is a total irrelevance. I would ban walking shots, but I wouldn't ban them because they're deception. I would ban them because they're grossly boring and some producers should think of something more creative to do instead. If producers get things wrong, then they should be accountable for their actions. But those who advocate ever tighter regulation, maybe some of those who will speak to you tonight, those who would send the Gestapo in at every opportunity will end up with a television culture and a broadcasting culture that is risk-free. The problem with zero tolerance is that it leads to zero risk and thence to zero creativity. If there is a broader problem in broadcasting, if there is a systemic problem, I think it may be in the commissioning culture that has grown up in recent years. My experience with programs that have gone badly wrong has been, for the most part, that they have been driven by a fear of failure. The producers have been scared not to deliver for the controllers or the commissioners. Therefore, I think controllers and commissioners have to give program makers more slack. They have to give room for more risk, and yes, they sometimes have to give room for more failure. Trust is crucial in broadcasting, but without creative risk-taking, then no one will be watching. Phil, it's difficult to interpret what you said in any other terms, that you think that the crisis is not severe and that the Director General of the BBC has overreacted. Is that your view? I think the Director General of the BBC has probably got the balance about right now. 
I think, however, How's that over, the summer, what over the summer, over the summer, I'm finished with it, Roger. Over the summer, uh, I think there was too much sackcloth. So his, in his immediate reaction, he's got it wrong. I think the BBC overreacted, yes, to some of it, yeah. And I think the BBC Trust overreacted to some of it as well, yes. And does that mean that you think some of the punishments that have been meted out are unfair? I don't know. I have no idea about the individual circumstances of any of the individuals, and I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly know that. Mark? I, I want to explore with you, Mr Harding, this, this uh, fear of failure. I mean, yeah. I think this is something which many independents will identify with. Um, how did you, the BBC, uh, encourage a greater degree of openness to enable uh, whistleblowing, to enable people to say, I'm sorry, this just isn't working, um, we're going to have to junk this particular programme? How did that work? Well, I think you've got to be prepared to back programme makers, and I've, I've commissioned programmes in my time, and I, think you've got to, um, and I think you've got to be prepared for failure, and you've got to be prepared for the financial risk sometimes that it does carry. I think there is an element of money here. Uh, commissioners have limited budgets and of course the market has got more competitive of course program makers are more and commissioners are more and more anxious to um, stand out in a, in a very noisy environment uh, but I think that you have got to do that and if people if, peop if a program doesn't stand up then you've got to encourage that culture where somebody can say to you I'm sorry this story just doesn't work it seems to me that there are t two issues really one is this story doesn't work how does that relationship work, perhaps with the commissioning editor, maybe with senior execs, uh, and the space there, which doesn't seem to me institutionally there at the moment. And I, I'd be interested in your views as to how that is put into place. But there's a separate question, which is when somebody on an independent production sees something happening which shouldn't, who do they tell without losing their job? Well, the standard whistleblowing procedures, which I'm sure you're more aware of than I am, would be that you take it to your immediate boss to start off with. If your immediate boss does nothing about it, then you take it to the person who's commissioned the program. And if they do nothing about it, then you publicly blow the whistle. Do you, do you understand that there's a climate of fear, though, amongst people, who, particularly the junior, younger members within the uh, independent sector, um, people who, who, who don't feel uh, able to stand up uh, and publicly say to their direct line manager, the person that employs them, uh, I think that this is, something's going wrong here because they know that they'll be out the door and somebody else will be in their shoes as soon as looking. Yeah, I think it would be. I think it would be difficult for a junior producer or a junior researcher to uh, to do that. Uh, but I think that if broadcasting is going to thrive, it's got to encourage a culture where there is much more open disclosure of these things. Okay, let's move on to sackcloth and ashes. Um, what's your reaction been to uh, Mr. Grade and uh, his uh, pronouncements recently? Well, I think that, uh, as I said, I think z the problem with zero tolerance is that it leaves very few margins for error. And I think the risk with that is that if you end up with zero tolerance, then people are always looking over their shoulder. They will always take the safe option and they won't try things. And broadcasting, if it's going to thrive, has got to depend upon trying things out. Do you think it actually uh, precludes a, a, an apparent openness and a, a openness to admit yeah, mistakes? Yeah, I think there's a risk of that too, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you, you were talking about the public and you said that they're more inquiring and in, uh, all, all the uh, investigative. Um, do you think that uh, the I said, audience... I said I think they ought to be and in a healthy democracy they should be. Right. And do you think they are? I think... Uh, 
there is every sign that they will be, and I think that, if anything, I would advocate that they should be encouraged to be more so and that there should be um, a greater emphasis on media literacy at early ages. It seems to me, though, that uh, the public are reacting with some surprise to the events that are, are currently going on, uh, which would in itself indicate that they aren't as informed as perhaps the chattering classes might hope. Well, I think some are. My, my experience with audiences has been that audiences are extremely savvy, actually, and that they do have, I don't mean that they know every, every device, every artifice and so on, but that they have a pretty shrewd idea of what's going on, uh, and that audiences are pretty, in, are pretty intelligent and will come to it. Of course some will be surprised. I think the honest answer is we don't know what the audience thinks of all of this yet. There's been some research which showed that trust in the BBC and in other broadcasters dropped over the summer, but I don't, know with, with, I don't think we know yet whether that's a long-term effect. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Thank you. Just time for a couple of questions from the audience. Um, gentleman there, and then we'll come here. Yep, gentleman there. Could you just speak to the microphone? Please, sorry, we'll get to you in a second. Thanks. Hi, Atul Shah, Diverse Ethics. Uh, one of the best ways of checking trust is through transparency and accountability. The BBC has, and we've talked a lot about the BBC because it actually is a special case in media as a public sector broadcaster. The BBC has this amazing website, but you try and find the name of an editor of any program on that website, and you'll be, well, I'll give you, I'll give you 10 quid. <laughs> But it's not there. The editors are absolutely invisible. And you're talking about local editors. You're talking about editors of national uh, programs and national departments. They're, and if you try and contact them by phone or email, they don't respond and they are not accountable to anyone. And this is a serious problem. And it's, it's not rocket science what I'm saying. So I'm surprised. So, Phil, is there a way of making editors more accountable? It would, it's remarkable that BBC Television doesn't have a program of accountability or right to reply as Channel 4 had. I mean, that to me is incredible. I think the BBC should. Uh, I think the BBC should be much more open and transparent about what it does and, and why it does things. And I also think that if things go wrong, actually people should be much more open about the fact that they have gone wrong. If you haven't got a competition winner, why not say to the audience, I'm sorry this week we haven't got a competition winner? My, my view on that would be trust the audience and the audience will trust you. Damien Tambini, LSE. Phil, you say don't send in the Gestapo. Yes. Uh, and by that I presume you mean we don't want tighter broadcasting codes um, at, the, at a legal level or via Ofcom. But what about self-regulation? Is there something that needs to be done uh, in terms of the BBC or the other broadcasters' own editorial guidelines, or might there be something else that can be done? Do we need a kind of a Dogma 97 for factual and news, which is more transparent and is more um, establishes a relationship with the audience? I don't think, I mean, in the end, guidelines are supposed to be the embodiment of a culture, and God knows I've written enough of them. Um, I think that actually that you can have all the guidelines in the world, but actually you've got to also have the culture that backs them up. Uh, and I think that's the most important thing within a broadcaster, that these guidelines matter and also how they should be um, interpreted. Um, a lot has been made and a lot has been mocked about the BBC idea of having um, uh, training courses uh, as a result of this. And of course broadcasters and most broadcasters do not need to be told, you know, don't make things up. Of course not. But actually, I've talked to a lot of former colleagues 
who are, in some cases, seriously confused now about what is and is not allowable. You've obviously got extremes. That's perfect. That's dreadful. That's perfectly okay. But in the middle, and it comes down to, as Anne Lapping was saying, quite a lot to editing and what is acceptable and not acceptable. And I think you've got a, a middle area of debate there, which I think, and which I assume the training course will actually allow people to discuss and bring those sorts of things out into the open. Phil Harding, thank you very much. Thank you. Now a brief um, interlude in the incestuous world of television, or perhaps not, because our next witness is Neil Midgley, a former corporate lawyer turned journalist. He's been at the Daily Telegraph for three years, where he's group TV and radio editor. Neil, over to you. Hi. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, as, uh, as Roger was just saying, I probably come at this from a slightly different perspective from the other witnesses tonight, because I, I don't and never have worked uh, in TV, or and particularly in factual journalistic TV, uh, as I think most of my compatriots here tonight have done. Um, and so my job really is to sort of stand on the shore and watch these waves coming in uh, week after week, which isn't always a, a, an edifying task. Um, the, the question that we're posed tonight is, can we still trust TV? And uh, I actually, in manner of lawyer, want to take issue with the question. Um, because I think at the, if, the, if the question is can we trust in TV right now, um, then I think the answer has to be yes. I mean, if, if we can't trust what the people are putting out at the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 at the moment after all this endless neurosis and forensic uh, investigation over the summer, uh, then I don't think we're ever going to be able to. Can we still trust in TV implies that there is a continuity of that. And I think there isn't necessarily. I think there has been, people are pulling their socks up. And I hear anecdotes from people who make programs uh, all the time about the ways in which they are now being uh, compartmentalized by compliance officers and forms and, you know, and, and fear uh, in a way that they never used to be. And in genres that, that haven't, that much been picked up on tonight. You know, we talked about wife swap and supernanny and so forth. But even in drama, people are getting this now. So there is this culture of, of neurosis, and I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Um, I also want to pick up on what uh, Phil was saying about proportionality of response, really. Um, we, we didn't see the video at the beginning, which I think was a shame, because it would have refreshed our memories as to what has actually happened this year. Just to very quickly run through a, a list the whole thing kicked off with Richard and Judy. We've had, and the You Say We Pay. We had the GMTV fraud. We had Queengate. We had the first Blue Peter incident. We had the Malcolm and Barbara, did he die, did he not die? We had the, sec the sort of second Blue Peter round and all the other BBC stuff that's come out. And we've had Noddygate. Well, out of all of that, the bulk of those incidents are about interactive TV in some way. They're about phone-ins or votes. Uh, or revenue rating. Um, Malcolm and Barbara and the Queen, neither of those were criticised for what actually went on screen, on the channel. It was about the promotion beforehand. So of all of the, I mean, unless I've missed a major incident in that list, the only one which is, well, we're talking about criticism of programmes that are actually on screen, it's poor old Alan Yentop and possibly a few people at Five doing their Noddies. Um, and so I think on that basis, it's important to keep it in perspective. 
And I personally don't think that 16,000 program makers at the BBC need the chips in their heads reprogramming. And I don't think that Michael Gray needs to stand up and shout zero tolerance uh, as if he's Rudy Giuliani in the South Bronx on a particularly rough day. <laughs> yeah, I, you, you've got it. And, and, and Andy Duncan is kite mark, kite mark, kite mark idea uh, equally. Uh, an overreaction, I think, especially from a broadcaster which purports to want to nurture small indies, which by their very nature aren't going to have huge uh, training and compliance budgets. And just finally, on that point about budgets, I think there is a, you know, the, at the trust meeting, the BBC trust meeting on Wednesday, as far as I understand it, the two major points of discussion were this whole trust fakery thing, but also the reprioritisation and budgets exercise that the BBC is going through at the moment. Um, and it's obvious, it's certainly obvious to me in a, in a commercial media organisation where there's always pressure on budgets, that if you cut and cut and cut and cut the budget and you expect the same product or more products, sooner or later the quality is going to decrease. And there has to be, in this whole exercise of the BBC in particular, some bravery. And Mark Thompson has to say, we are going to cut hundreds and hundreds of hours of stuff which is just not core to our mission. And we are going to leave proper budgets in place for the hours of output which are, which are core to our mission. Uh, and I think the attacks on Storyville in particular show that uh, that bravery is not happening at the BBC. And I think that's uh, very sad. Now, Neil, you talked about an overreaction, not obviously in the case of the fraud, but specifically in the BBC. To what extent do you think the print media have a responsibility for that? Peter Wilby said um, in a piece in Guardian, Why Right-Wingers are on the Warpath, he said, the web has turned the broadcast and print media into direct rivals. Newspapers now they've discovered they can't charge for content, must attract visitors whom advertisers will pay to reach. The BBC News website, still the market leader, doesn't have to worry about that. When you read the Daily Mail, for example, and the way it's dealt with it, do you think that the press bear a great deal of responsibility for hyping this crisis? I'm not going to take any responsibility for the Daily Mail. Um, but <laughs> Is it your observation that the fellow members, fellow journalists in the print media may have hyped this? Well, I think, that, I, I, I think we do have some responsibility, yes. Uh, and I, journalists will always look for a good story, uh, print journalists as, as much as any other. And people care about TV in a way that they don't care about the peace process in the Middle East. It's but there's also the suggestion is also there's an agenda. Is it an entire coincidence that the Daily, Mirror, Daily Mail gives the prominence it does to these issues and kicks hard? Well, that, they're not a disinterested group, I think the argument no, no, goes. No, they're not, but I don't think that's necessarily because they're commercial competitors online with the BBC. The Daily Mail has a well-known anti-BBC agenda, um, and it, it's probably fuelled by that. I certainly, know, knowing as I know how the news agenda is formed at the Telegraph, and we now compete online for video news viewers as much as we compete for print news readers with the BBC, but that doesn't inform our editorial agenda, as far as I know. Mark, you, you're talking really about uh, trust in, in, in two concepts. You're talking about trust, uh, the facts which are coming out of the BBC which, uh, and, and the ITV and the, everywhere else. You're saying that that's, trust facts, that's, that's okay because they're under very careful scrutiny at the moment and therefore 
um, there's, a, there's not a problem. But that ignores uh, trust in judgment. Uh, and it seems to me that the editorial decisions that were being talked about earlier, uh, those, th those, those calls, are not apparent to the viewer. And it seems to me that that's where the trust is eroded. Would you agree with that? Well, I'm not sure whether viewers actually um, have lost trust in the, uh, the editorial judgments of the, of the people who are making the programmes, of, of the producers and the directors and the editors. I think there is, or at least ought to be, an erosion of trust in the judgment of the people who are running the networks because their response to this has been so craven uh, and so disproportionate and so backside-covering well, it's not just this event, is it? I mean, the, the big watershed uh, ebb away of trust was back in 2003 when there was a 48% fall in trust, uh, according to the uh, uh, ITC uh, trust survey that was carried out that year, which was on top of a 28% uh, fall the previous year, um, and it seemed to have gone on ever since, and undoubtedly we're going to see a big surge this year. Um, so... Your point really is about um, a lack of leadership, is it? What, what would your remedy be for the le leadership then that you're, that you're not seeing at the moment? Well, I, I, I think uh, one of my, the former witnesses uh, w was talking about um, keeping this in proportion and, and the fact that Mark Thompson, for example, has been too uh, hair-shirt in his response. And I think, you know, there, there is an instant response. If, if you've libeled, the, if you're Peter Fincham and you've libeled the Queen, then you have to go on Newsnight and you have to bow and scrape. And that is absolutely as it should be. But when it comes to the cold light of day and the dust settles, I think Mark Thompson needs to take leadership and say more clearly, I think, than he, that he, has, than he has done, that the vast bulk of the people who work for him and the Indies who supply him are perfectly trustworthy and perfectly competent, and they don't need to be reprogrammed. But uh, do you th feel that there is any problem at the moment in the structure? I mean, we talked earlier with, with Mr. Harding about the possibility of there being more space uh, to enable their people to say there are errors going on, uh, being made or that this program won't work and not actually forcing it to air uh, in some kind of buggered form. Um, is, is that a responsibility that you see as being firmly grasped by people at the top? Well, not as far as I can see. and I, I don't know what the whistleblowing policies are at the, at the BBC, um, but it doesn't seem to me that I think there was the uh, woman, Leona McCambridge from Six Music, who I understand it was fired having blown the whistle. That's just outrageous. I mean, you know, there must be a better structure in place. And the BBC, as has been said, is insulated from commercial pressures uh, and should... Well, I don't think it's just the BBC, is it? I mean, Channel 4 is, has the same problems. Well, yes, but Channel 4 is under commercial pressure in a way that the BBC isn't. The BBC certainly has a responsibility to lead the way in creating a culture of honesty and openness. Let's just look at this issue of trust a little more, and perhaps in a slightly different way which is about institutional bias. Um, does that strike at trust, do you think? The fact that um, Lyons is perceived to be Brown's poodle, should that cause the public to have more trust or less trust? Well, my personal experience from interviewing to Michael Lyons is that he's nobody's poodle. Um, 
But I, he would I, tell you that, wouldn't he? He, he would tell me that, yes. Um, but I don't think there's any uh, governmental agenda that you could see in what's happened over the summer in terms of how the trust has responded. I mean, if there was a, 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 a repeat of the Gilligan problems, then you would find whether uh, he's a government poodle or not. You've got to have a system. I think the BBC does need a system. If, if the question is, you know, is the trust in somebody or other's pocket in all of this, the BBC does need, I think, a unique form of regulation. I don't think Ofcom will cut it. Uh, and well, let's, let's just move on to, to, to look at the Gilligan situation. The government's attacks on the BBC, do they, do they erode trust? Well, it depends whether you agree with them or not. I mean, well, uh, my view still is that Alistair Campbell threw his toys out of the pram and, and wouldn't stop, and the, um, you know, the, the fault largely lies with him, even if you know, Gilligan did um, uh, sex up the truth in his, uh, in his report. Um, there has to be, I think, a, a moderate debate. And the, for the government to take part in any kind of debate, it has to be moderate and reasoned. And I think when there's hysteria, you know, you talk about the print media being hysterical. As soon as you get hysteria from any powerful constituency, then you get a warped debate. Yeah, you may have a warped debate, but you've got the public perception that there's a problem in the political arena in the trust with the BBC. You've got a problem with um, uh, perceived institutional bias at, at the station. Uh, you're seeing uh, perceived problems with um, concerns about truth and honesty and the judgment of people making those things, yet you still say that this is some minor problem that we should have no concern about. I, I don't think it's a minor problem, because, and the number of column inches that my newspaper and every other one give to it show that it's not a minor problem, but I think it's one that has to be kept in proportion. And the, the way, partially the way to rebuild trust in the BBC is for Mark Thompson to show why the BBC is trustworthy instead of kicking the people beneath it. Your witness. Well, thanks. Any um, time for a couple of questions from the audience? Yeah, we'll take one there and one at the back. Uh, gentleman here first, please. Yeah, I'm Peter Thompson. I'm from World Press Centre. In 1990, governments agreed to use IT at the World Bank to enable all of the delegations to start putting news material together so that all journalists could see the latest stuff at big set piece news events like that. But putting, at the moment, the IT has been left out of this conversation as, as the underlying cause of the budgetary pressure, the fact that there's more and more channels, more and more, more uh, ways for users, for the citizen to get news, that has been left out of the discussion and the clear and obvious solution that is available to us is to invite all of the world's um, sources of news material to actually put together an independent user-driven stream of the latest stuff about breaking news direct from sources that take responsibility for their own stuff and then people can actually see 
what journalists do with that stuff and whether they add value, whether they evaluate it, whether they misreport it, any of those kinds of issues, it's a very cheap solution. It could save the BBC a hell of a lot of money, uh, all other broadcasters, and um, we might be able to see who actually is bearing the responsibility for having seen something and reported it accurately. All right, thank you. Lady off the back there, yeah. Um, Alex Nellis, I work with Public Relations. I'd like to ask Neil, um, the question posed today has been, can we still trust TV? However, in your capacity as a lawyer turned journalist, do you think the question should be, and what do you think of the question, can we still trust those who guard the guardians, namely Ofcom or the regulatory bodies? Well, I, I mean, I think the, 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 regulatory, the trust in the regulatory bodies is one issue. Trust, I think, in senior management, actually. Can we trust senior management at the broadcasters uh, is probably a more pertinent question because they are the people who day-to-day have to to both regulate and motivate the people that work for them. Uh, And I think they have been found wanting. I don't think, actually, you might criticise the trust, for example, for moving quite slowly, but I don't think it's actually been found wanting in the way that it's fulfilled its regulatory brief. And, And I don't think Ofcom can be considered toothless either. So I'd focus more on the senior management than the regulators. Neil Mitchley, thanks very much. <laughs> Two more witnesses to go, and uh, the first of these is Stephen Whittle. He used to run religious programs at the BBC, uh, became controller of editorial policy, is a former director of the Broadcasting Standards Commission, and currently is chair of the Broadcast Training and Skills Regulator. Stephen. Thank you. Gosh, that's... Um a reminder of pasts I've forgotten. Um, and I also feel a little bit as if I've stumbled into a conclave of cardinals here because we've had a lot of talk all evening about sackcloth and ashes and sin and eternal punishment. Um, let me move from the conclave to the law courts where two lawyers, partners, were having lunch and one suddenly very startled turned to the other and said, oh my God, I've left the office safe open to which the reply was, don't worry, we're both here. (laughs) I mention that because in another capacity, I regulate solicitors. Um, And actually, what you've got here is, it seems to me, a very parallel example because does the fact that around 5% of the profession cause enormous problems for the 95% of relatively honest lawyers mean uh, that every lawyer is necessarily bent? And if you actually look at the the record again of of both Ofcom and its predecessor bodies, then um, the numbers of times on which broadcasters are really found to be massively wanting when it comes to fairness or privacy issues is actually, compared to the number of hours being broadcast, relatively small. That doesn't mean, of course, as others have made clear this evening, that we don't have an issue, we don't have a problem. So I think one of the encouraging things is, and this debate is another example of it, of the fact that it demonstrates that we all have an enormous interest in broadcasting still, despite all of the other opportunities that are around. And of course, that when it comes to the BBC, there is no such thing as a disinterested person. But it's also worth remembering, I think, that broadcasters do, in fact, enjoy levels of trust that MPs and estate agents would die for Um, and even despite the events of the summer 
I think that does, broadly speaking, remain true. And let me say it again, that actually probably, that, well, indeed we know that the trust that they enjoy is a great deal higher still uh, than for uh, the, the newspapers, be they tabloid or broadsheet. But increasingly, of course, we live in a changing culture and a changing society. And I guess it's inevitable that as a part of that changing culture and changing society, broadcasters reflect not only the good but also the bad. And some of the issues that have been raised already around the increasing importance of competition within the sector, the increasing importance of the making of money within the sector. Once upon a time, money was used to make programs rather than the other way around. And, so, and also the consequential changes that have impacted on all broadcasters, both from the rise of the independent sector, from the uh, continuing desire to cut and, and make the most effective use of resources, but most particularly in the way in which people are uh, recruited to the industry, leaves a lot to be desired. And some of the assumptions that we could once take for granted clearly can no longer be held to be as reliable as once they were. Osmosis no longer works, uh, and clearly as well, um, the terms of employment under which people work has got to be a major challenge for the industry across the entire sector. Uh, the body I chair, the Broadcast Training and Skills Regulator, had a meeting of freelancers in London in the summer. The people who came to that meeting, 60% of them had never been asked by any employer, and most of them had had six in the course of a year as a regular part of their work. None of them had ever been asked by any of their employers, sorry, 60%, mustn't get it wrong, uh, had never been asked by any of the employees whether they'd been trained. Now, I think that's where some of these issues lie. They lie at the top in terms of um, approaches to employment, approaches to training, which leave a lot to be desired. And similarly, at, at the middle and the bottom, in terms of actually ensuring that the people who are working on these programs do have any sense whatsoever of what they need uh, to be and to do. So I think what we've got here is, is actually a window of opportunity around ensuring that people are properly recruited into an industry where they get an apprenticeship because judgment cannot be taught in a classroom. It has to be part of a process in which you see a program through from beginning to end. So um, I'll just finish at that point, I think, in terms of this actually providing an opportunity the bicycle is not actually off the road. It's a question of making quite sure that it remains on the road and working properly. Uh, so, Stephen, you would, uh, those people who have tried to say somehow these younger people are less moral than we were when we were involved, you say that's rubbish, yeah? Um, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think, um, you know, there, there's, there's certainly the fact that they, they live under a much greater pressure of delivery and a much, greater delivery, a much greater pressure around where the next contract is coming from. So in that circumstance, clearly you're not going to be the first person to say, I failed. Um, you're going to be the, the person who's hopefully always um, you know, on the ball and getting it right. So I think it's much to do with the culture of a program, much to do with the culture of a network. And how about the culture of the management, a much more highly paid management uh, than when you and I started in broadcasting? Um, do you think that they are uh, in danger of washing their hands to a degree of the situation that they're supervising 
and taking drastic and in some cases unfair action on young people? Um, <clears throat> I think they've all actually seen it as a rather substantial wake-up call. That's my reading of what's going on. And actually, I think um, you're going to see, I hope anyway, uh, a great deal more attention paid to trying to deal with some of the underlying issues here. Um, and clearly there are difficulties around balancing, uh, on the one hand, um, the requirements around independent production, and on the other hand, clearly about delivering uh, effective and efficient programme-making. But um, Nigel was making the point very forcefully, and I think quite rightly, about concentrating on your core, your core output uh, and making absolutely sure that that is actually properly funded and properly seen through. But for some people, just a final question, it sticks in their throats that young people are encouraged to come forward and uh, confess things that they believe may be wrong. When they've done that, and it was certainly in one instance, they then got fired. I mean, do you think that's a particularly moral way for management to behave? Well, if that were the case, then clearly no. I'm not quite sure that is exactly um, the, the case as it is. I think, um, I mean, again, the BBC and ITV, and for all, for all I know, Channel 4 too, have got a whistleblowing policy. You can find it on their websites. You might want to ask whether or not it's the best whistleblowing policy because, for example, uh, the BBC's whistleblowing policy puts an awful lot of uh, reliance in the end on anonymity and confidential helplines, which in itself creates, doesn't it, a sort of slint, a slight sense of a culture uh, that is not going to be supportive of the whistleblower, uh, that you know, you're, 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 you're the likely outcome of your blowing, blowing the whistle is indeed that you know, something un untoward is going to happen, rather than it's dealt, in, dealt with in, in, in an open way. Mark? You, you spoke, Mr. Whittle, about the uh, pressure of delivery and contract. Um, how would you change that pressure to enable things to improve for the future. Um, if you're still in, in post, what are you going to be doing tomorrow to make things better, to reassure everyone? Well, um, the body I chair, in fact, although it's, called a, it's a co-regulatory body between Ofcom and, and the broadcasters, and for that matter, um, Skillset, which is the training provider within the industry. And I think clearly one of the things that we are doing as part of our responsibility is getting uh, people at the very top of the broadcasting organisations to understand that training is not an optional extra. It's actually core. It's absolutely central, not only, uh, obviously, to uh, a successful creative future, but also to a successful uh, and well-running business. The problems that we have, though, is because we have this kind of bifurcated system, uh, the challenge is that the broadcasters at one level are, are responsible for their people and may train them, may actually have the budgets to do so. But where's the incentive on the people below that, uh, the independent sector? Where are they going to get the incentive and the money to actually train people who are actually not going to be with them at all? Well, of course, um, the broadcasters are perfectly free uh, to provide training, certainly in the compliance area where we've had some of the issues around, around this summer. It's perfectly within the power and possibility of broadcasting organisations to actually work together to provide good compliance training for the independent and freelance sector. And equally, it would be clearly easily possible too for broadcasters to say, unless someone can demonstrate that they've been on one of these courses and got some kind of certificate of competence, then they're not people that should be working on any production for us. That's 
one of the ways in which... So you see, you see that change. as a contractual change in the, in the sort of pact terms, do you? Well, I also, I also wonder in terms of the kind of level of fines that are now coming out of Ofcom, whether you won't find prenuptials in contracts between broadcasters and independent production companies. Um, talking about standards, um, you, you, you seem to imply that we're entitled to trust in television. Um, how would you define that bond of honesty, that bond of trust between uh, viewer and program maker and broadcaster? Well, Laurie and uh, others have talked about the fact that we actually live in a much more media literate society and Phil talked about the fact that uh, audiences are indeed quite savvy and I think actually broadcasters underestimate uh, audiences absolutely at their peril. Uh, people hate being talked down to. I find it most intriguing myself that uh, in a society where more people are at university than any time in our, in our history as a society, you wouldn't necessarily get that impression from watching television in terms of tone, in terms of the use of language, in terms of the depth with which people go into issues. Honourable exceptions, of course. Um, but, you know, clearly you underestimate people at your peril, and that, of course... Is, is a very, uh, ultimately a very commercial issue for broadcasters. Do you, do you think that there's a coherent set of criteria for what's acceptable um, in terms of uh, uh, compliance and, uh, and, and trust issues? Uh, or do you think it's a bit like an elephant, you know one when you see it? No, I mean, I think if you look at, at, at the Ofcom code, for example, um, there you have um, a very clear principle set out the rule in support or the rules in support of the principle and guidance for the ways in which um, you can ensure that you, you meet with the requirements of both the principle and, and the rule. Uh, none of this is actually rocket science. There are from time to time, of course, um, you know, peculiarities of the sort that Roger was talking to uh, earlier in terms of really difficult uh, and sometimes ambiguous situations, but for the most part, it's not, it's not uh, as I say, it's not like dancing on, a, on the head of a pin. Do you think then that, uh, last question, do you think then that uh, the regulators are doing a perfect job or do you think they've got lessons to learn here too? Well, I think um, clearly um, one of the things that's happened as a result of, of the summer is, is that, that, that uh, Ofcom, in terms of the regulator with financial teeth, uh, is clearly making it very clear to, to broadcasters that they are responsible for what they broadcast, no matter who provides it which in turn is going to encourage broadcasters, I assume, to ask much more searching questions about how material gets to them. Thanks so much. We're a bit pressed for time, so just one question if anybody wants to raise it. Yeah, gentleman in the middle there, if we could get... Sorry, a bit disenfranchised. I will come to you next, because I haven't asked anybody up there. Two questions then. Yeah. there's nothing new about pressure in, in the media um, and, and equally um, you know there's always been a sort of I suppose a tension if you like between the people who come from the factual side of the house where um, essentially there's a, a whole set of assumptions not to say rules about accuracy for example and fairness um, and those who come uh, more often from the entertainment side of the house where the pressure is that the show must go on 
And I think one, perhaps one of the dangers of the mixing, the mixing of genre is actually that you get the confusion then between uh, fact and fiction. Gentlemen, there. Can I just speak loudly? Oh, you have got a mic. Just speak loudly. I think the biggest challenge um, <clears throat> for broadcasters over the next 10 years is going to be to continue to engage with the kind of audiences they currently engage with. And in my belief, they're only going to do that by having utterly distinctive offerings uh, to, to, to make for people, of which trust is a very important component. Um, but it's going to be about the whole range of quality, imagination, innovation, creativity, uh, and indeed addressing issues people want addressed those are going to be the challenges for broadcasters, of which trust is most obviously a part, but it's only a part. Stephen Whittle, thank you very much. We now come to our final witness, David Elstein, who spent, I think, eight months at the BBC at the age of 20, but then went on to be um, Chief Executive 5, Director of Programmes at Thames, worked for Sky, uh, is now Chairman of the British Screen Advisory Council and much else. David. Uh, thank you, Roger. Actually, it was four years at the BBC, but it was a long time ago. I was one of those general trainees who never had a day of training. Um, uh, being paid as much as I was, £975 a year, I was put straight to work. Um, and you learn on the job. Uh, can we just clear up a few things? Uh, this is not an economic issue. The BBC has an income of £3.2 billion a year. For week after week, the Liz Kershaw show on Radio 6 pretended to be live, invited people to phone in, announced fake winners. It's simply impossible for that to have happened without management knowledge. And it's simply impossible for that to have happened without a culture of immunity and impunity. What we have seen emerging uh, from the BBC uh, in its very uh, simplistic uh, tip of the iceberg investigation uh, is um, a short period of introspection uh, tell us what's gone wrong take the risk of being fired if you tell us and that's it uh, on March the 14th the BBC admitted to the first of the Blue Peter scandals publicly Mark Thompson apologised two days later Comic Relief did a fake phone in did anyone notice what the Director General had said? Did anyone care? And yet, what is it that we don't trust? It's worth remembering that it was a BBC Panorama episode that fully exposed the Blue Peter scandal and indeed, uh, in the same programme, completely demolished GMTV, eventually forcing it the next day to abandon most of its programming and spend its time apologising. I can't remember how many times I saw Paul Corley, the uh, since-resigned uh, managing director, uh, appearing on the programme. What you had to ask yourself is, how could senior broadcasters 
allow onto the air such an utterly flawed method of involving their viewers and indeed ripping them off. It's, I mean, they wouldn't allow it in terms of writing a news bulletin. Why was this tolerated? Now, the only slight difference between now and the past, because there have been loads of these scandals in the past, is the interactivity vote. Uh, because of red button technology, because of phonings, because of texting, because commercial TV could make money out of all of that interactivity, virtually every program on the air went down that route and the BBC followed suit even though it wasn't making money. But what you got was a contempt for the participators. Who cares if they voted for cookie rather than socks? We prefer socks. Uh, who cares who won the competition? We've got someone in the studio who can turn up and pretend they won the competition. When you have that view of your audience, something is deeply wrong. Now, it is true, of course, that for the most part, the outcomes are trivial. Does it matter? Well, for me, it matters in cultural terms. Because when an organization allows this to be so prevalent, seems to have so little by way of investigative uh, impulse, uh, has such a deeply flawed um, governance system as the BBC has, it is not surprising that over a period of time you lose trust. 25 years ago, when I was a, a current affairs editor, I discovered that a, an episode of a BBC series called Inside Story, uh, which purported to show how a cupboard had been found in a barn in Wales and emerged from this dust and obscurity uh, to become a prized antique, which made its way through a series of shops into Islington and finally to Boston. Uh, it was called Inside Story because it was telling you an unusual inside story. Complete fake. Um, John Creed, uh, the Islington uh, antiques dealer, had provided the BBC with a cupboard in the first place and it was put in the Welsh barn to start the programme off. It took me many weeks to persuade the editor of Inside Story to come clean and admit it. In those days, at least, there was a BBC programme uh, called The Editors, uh, on which he could uh, do his mayor culprits. As Roger rightly points out, there is no such programme on the BBC at the moment because the BBC doesn't care. It's not a core value, and this is a serious problem because what it then tips over into is uh, a much, much bigger issue, which is loss of control of your core values. And one key core value here is impartiality. Uh, some of you may have read a report uh, published in June called um, From Seesaw to Wagon Wheel. It was a, an interesting, though limited, investigation into episodes where the BBC seemed to have lost control of its obligation to impartiality. The most significant episode was when the lab, uh, campaigning group uh, Make Poverty History captured uh, a drama and uh, an episode of The Vicar of Dibley and almost captured a live uh, rock concert. And the BBC <laughs> tried to keep the insurgents at bay and substantially succeeded in one case, completely failed in the other two. Again, not a lot was at stake. But actually, I know of a much, much worse breach of the impartiality rules, probably the worst in the BBC's entire history, which for four years I've been trying to get the BBC to investigate, 
absolutely refuse it. And by the way, before we all get highly moral about the BBC, uh, Laurie, I'm sorry to say that The Guardian published uh, a piece of the same evidence a year ago. Twelve letters later, I still have not got the BBC, uh, the, The Guardian, to correct the most egregious error in its entire history. Uh, I've written to the chairman of the Scott Trust, the editor of the newspaper, the ombudsman, the journalist concerned three times, the letters editor three times. Nobody will take it seriously. So what we have here is whom do I trust? I certainly don't trust the BBC editorially. I will never do a pre-recorded interview for the BBC because I don't trust their editing. And when I say, when I'm asked, will you do a pre-record, and I say, if you let me see your edited version, and they say, oh, that's against our editorial guidelines, I say, fine, uh, I'll go live or not at all. This is serious stuff, because what you need is accountability and transparency of procedure. When I was running the This Week program, I only had one rule for my staff. Expect what you do to become public. That was an important discipline. And I'm sorry I disagree with Phil. Zero tolerance does not lead to zero risk. Zero tolerance leads to uh, calculated risk. It leads to discipline. It leads to a knowledge that if your story doesn't stand up, it will be kicked out. I came within two hours of putting out a half-hour program driven by a key interviewee, and finally, just before transmission, we worked out he was a fraud and dumped the program. You've got to have internalized into your culture this um, approach to what it is that you do. Can you be trusted? I also had a rule that every transcript of every interview uh, was available to the interviewee so they could check after transmission whether we had edited them fairly. That was another interesting discipline uh, for my staff. And I think the point we have here is that the BBC simply doesn't take this seriously enough. It's got a flawed governance system in that the BBC Trust is not sufficiently detached, isn't sufficiently experienced. Even Ofcom, by my standards, lacks the professionalism and rigour with which it ought to be investigating complaints. I've watched the BBC complaint system at work. It sucks. It is completely lacking in credibility. And calling in ex-BBC executives to investigate BBC misdemeanours what does that tell you about the organisation? That it doesn't trust us. So why should we trust it? David, thanks uh, very much. Sure. I'm afraid you wouldn't find any transcripts nowadays because on the whole the programmes can't afford them. But can I just be clear about what your remedy is? You identify a, a, failing, a, a failing culture, an inadequate system of governance... What do you propose to restore what you believe or perhaps create what you should believe be a correct culture? A tough, independent, external regulator with powers of scrutiny, access to all emails and the ability to fine. All fines to be paid by the Board of Management. So that means no BBC Trust, perhaps what? An even more empowered Ofcom? Yes, but a much uh, more uh, a much better resourced Ofcom. I've seen a complaint go through Ofcom, and with the best will in the world, uh, you know, it was uh, Amateurville night at, uh, at the Glasgow Palais. 
you know, they did their best, but they had virtually no resources to examine the documents, no ability to scrutinize, no ability to cross-examine. You know, if Mark Stevens is available, I've hired him, uh, plus a, a bunch of others to do the job. It's just too important to leave to... Uh, a sub, you know, they wouldn't do it with regulating BT. So why do they do it with regulating editorial content? Finally, this has not been an audition for that job, has it? Oh. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Right, Mark. Um, you, you talk about, Mr. Elstein, uh, loss of key core values, particularly impartiality. Um, yet you're also suggesting dump the BBC trust and go for... Uh, a, a revved up version of Ofcom but do you think that even a revved up version of Ofcom is going to uh, sit on something like there's something about Maria which seems to me nothing more than an advertorial for Andrew Lloyd Webber's next musical paid for at the expense of the licence fee pair well I, I declare an interest I used to uh, chair one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, businesses I was astonished when something about Maria went to air but you know what? It actually worked for the audience. It was completely transparent in what it was doing. Uh, nobody was deceived. Uh, it wasn't as if Andrew turned up in disguise and pretended to be somebody else uh, or got Bill Kenwright to, to, to mount the production. Uh, and I'm sure the BBC was uh, suspicious of the whole thing. Uh, they may never do it again, uh, or not a third time because they did it twice. Um, and interestingly, uh, you know, if you were Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, you would feel a bit aggrieved because they then took the format, sold it to US television and cut him out of the deal. You know, that's life. What goes around comes around. <laughs> Cynicism. Where do you think that this actually comes from? You spoke about it and the sort of contempt that uh, people in the chattering classes who work at Television Centre and elsewhere in Horse Free Road seem to have for the viewers. Why do, you, why do you think that is? Where has it come from? Because it didn't used to be there. Oh, I don't agree with you. Um, you know, it, it's been there for a long time. You know, ten years ago, we had the crisis over driving school, you know, because Maureen was shown in an episode, sitting up in bed at two o'clock in the morning and saying to her husband, I must go for a test drive. And people said, the BBC crew couldn't have been there. This must be uh, a recreation. Why wasn't it labelled? Recreation. And I remember going to a, a governor's conference uh, packed out with people like Brian Lapping speaking uh, eloquently against uh, these terrible things. And Peter Taylor, uh, you know, 40 years experience reporting Northern Ireland and other things, saying every time the BBC does something like this, it must put a label up. Okay, we're 10 years on, and we can't even label a, a, a fake phone-in. This is a fake phone-in. Don't bother to phone it. <laughs> Do you, do you think then that uh, the, the Ofcom is actually as effective as, say, ICSTIS, which does seem to be a fairly effective regulator? I mean, we saw the quarter of a million pound fine yesterday, um, whereas we don't seem to see Ofcom dishing out fines with quite the same alacrity and regularity. Well, wait a bit. I think uh, we're going to see a big, big fine for ITV, a big, big fine for GMTV, uh, and a lot of uh, additional rules. Look, Ofcom is learning its job. It's only whatever it is, four years old, five years old. Uh, and there's more to come. And I really hope that Ed Richards addresses the issue of resourcing his complaints department and making sure that every broadcaster is aware uh, that the regulator is there looking for you. Well, with those fines, maybe they've got the money to fund the lawyers. <laughs> uh, just time for uh, two questions again. Right, leader there. Uh, 
Third row, and I'll take the one behind. Sorry, sir. Right. And then. The mic's right behind you because it was behind given you. to the lady behind you. <laughs> but, but well intervened. Bill Ford, in my name, I'm founder president of the International Communications Forum, which embraces some 3,000 media professionals in 117 countries, compared with finding trust between the media and the readers, listeners, and viewers. And uh, I'm just thinking about uh, what we'll be discussing tonight. Art. Think about what we've been discussing tonight, that cheating on who won prizes seems to me to be small beer as compared with the overall dragging down impact of many TV programs on the values of the viewers. And I state the example of my beautiful, bright teenage granddaughter who became a drug addict and a vodka drinker. She says, as a result of getting the impression from TV items, on pseudo-celebrities and soaps that drug-taking and loose living was a cool and desirable way of life. When she decided to turn her back on it, it took two years, including a 14-week leadership course in Australia, for her to become a free and delightful person again. Well, I think that it's uh, not the role of our television to cause this destructive influence on the younger generation. Okay, can, so can you be thanks. sure it wasn't watching, uh, looking at stills of ladies with no noses in the Daily Telegraph that uh, uh, got her down this route? I mean, why? Well, a lot of things got her down, I but that's so. she thought. Certainly, it was television what done no, it. She I mean, thought it, it was no, that. Okay, so can I ask you, please, what sir, she thought. Could, yes. could you pass anyway, sorry, I don't, sir, I'm sorry, I beg I don't want to no, go on to the negative no, because sorry, I we're running out of time. So yes. I beg your pardon. I must yeah. stop you now. We can give a positive role. Thank you, sir. Uh, lady behind. Hi. Um, Mr. Elstein, when I listened to um, your talk just now, it echoes some of the themes that I heard Al Gore speak about recently when he was talking about his rationale for starting um, his web TV outlet called Current TV. Um, and Current TV, for other people here who don't know it, is effectively a citizen's journalist form of broadcasting, utilizing a, a different medium and technology. Um, and he basically said, you know, that there was so much corruption and lack of accountability and sort of arrogance in major media outlets that he was effectively driven to create something that was more transparent. Um, and so do you think that by the BBC and these significant broadcast brands, by not addressing the accountability problem, they are seeing sowing the seeds of their own demise and enabling the current TVs of the world? Well, look, I don't want to uh, deprecate uh, current TV because I'm sure it will add something. Um, but let's not confuse uh, user-generated content with editorial rigor. Uh, the BBC enjoys a huge residue of affection and trust amongst the public, absolutely massive. It can easily recover its reputation if it chooses to. What it lacks is the will to do it because it's worried about independence, editorial integrity. That's not the answer. The answer is scrutiny, accountability. That's what's needed. You don't need the internet to put this right. You need the BBC to put it right. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop there at this point. Thank you, David Elstein. We're now going to proceed to our vote. We're slightly overrunning, but thank you very much for staying. But I do want to know what you think. And remember, it's not just the BBC. The uh, question is, can we trust television? All those who think we can 
trust television. Please put your hands up. And all those who think we can't, um, I would say it's about 4-3 in favour of saying we can't trust television. Thank you very much for listening. I'm John Murphy. We decided if you could just stay still for a minute or two, please. Can we thank Roger and Mark, please, who've done a splendid job in bringing alive a... There is reception after, so you don't have to rush off. this free wine. A few other people to thank. Broadcasters sponsored the, the wine. Uh, LSE Media Group also co-sponsored this. So did Polis. And Charlie Beckett has been a, a joy to work with. Uh, we won't thank Nasty Nick, who, who said he'd come and then didn't come, nor Mr. Paul Watson, who said he'd come and didn't come. Um, fi finally, on November the 15th, there's a dream event. Nick Clark died a year ago. And on November the 15th, we have an event on... Uh, the Art of Interviewing with Jeremy Faxman, with John Snow, with Kirsty Young, with Jim Nocte and Peter Sissons. It's in, the, it's in the Council Chamber Broadcasting House. The tickets will be absolute gold dust. If you want to buy a ticket, Dorothea, Joe's over the back, will help you to buy one. But um, thank you all very much. We, we may just try to run the, run the video again, if, or we, maybe we will. It's on the website, if not. Phil, do you want to come and have a go? Thank you anyway for coming. <laughs>